Thanks, Sean. Well, it's, uh, I am actually very excited to be here today. Even though there's only a few people here, I know that everybody else is out there. And uh, this is my first Easter with uh, this congregation, and it's, it's so exciting for me to be here. Um, I want to talk about this chapter, but uh, before I do that, let me just get a quick introduction to uh, resurrection and this whole idea of resurrection. I remember a number of years ago, I was uh, doing uh, a memorial service for a family who I knew in the White Rock area who was connected with a lot of other families. There's a lot of people there. It was one of those occasions where I was doing a memorial service for someone who I didn't know, for people who, for the most part, I didn't know. We went through the service. We, we covered everything. And after the service, as is so often the case at the end of a memorial service, everyone's gathered around and we were in a garden setting and eating food and sharing conversation with each other. And I was looking for someone to talk with. So I found this group of ladies sitting at a table and I sat down with them and just started talking with them. And uh, of course, they know I'm the pastor. And it's always a little bit awkward because you're at a funeral and no one seems to want to talk to a pastor when you're at a funeral. (laughs) But uh, I'm sitting there and this one lovely lady sitting across from me uh, looks at me and, and just very boldly says right in front of everybody, she says, you don't really believe that stuff about the resurrection, do you? She didn't even ask me if I believed it. She said, you don't really believe it, do you? Uh, I told her I did. <laughs> and uh, she was a, a little actually dumbfounded that I would stand up against that and say, yes, actually, I do believe that. And you could just see this look on her face of how can you be so gullible? was the look that she had on her face. So with that in mind, let's take a look at this passage. Let's step into this whole idea of resurrection. So resurrection actually is the very core of the Christian faith. (laughs) With with resurrection, actually, if you can dare to, to begin to even consider it, with this notion of resurrection from the dead comes the greatest hope in the world. The greatest hope in the history of the world. And without the resurrection, the Apostle Paul himself actually says, if there is no resurrection, he says, our faith is futile, is what he says. We are still in our sins. And what's more, we are false witnesses. We're basically lying to you if it's not true. If only for this life we have hope, he writes, we are to be pitied more than all of mankind. (laughs) that's how much he believed in the resurrection. And you know, it is just like God to make something like the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. I mean, dead, three days dead, and then raised back to life. It's just like God to make something like that, something so unusual, so unexpected, something so apparently impossible, something so difficult for a rational person to accept. It's just like God to make an event like that the very crux of the Christian faith. Something that is so humanly impossible, but with God, all things are possible. It would seem that the resurrection is both our greatest hope and our greatest stumbling block (laughs) as mankind, right? And a lot of people have a real hard time grasping, holding on to, and in the end, believing in this notion of 
resurrection. And so it was for the early disciples too. They wrestled with this too. And in John chapter 20, we read about several groups of people or individuals and how they came to terms with the fact of the resurrection as that fact dawned upon them. And it wasn't easy for all of them to believe by any stretch of the imagination, and you wouldn't expect it to be. In fact, if the account had everybody just believing easily, it would be suspe- there would be su- suspicion about that kind of an account. But the fact that they struggle to b- believe is what actually makes the, account, the whole account more authentic. So we're going to look through this, uh, and it's not an exhaustive look at the chapter by any means. There's lots of stuff in this chapter. We could spend weeks in this chapter. I just want to investigate quickly the groups of people and what brought them to the point of belief. So first it's John himself, then it's Mary Magdalene, and then it's the whole group of disciples together, and finally it's Thomas, the one who is known as the doubter. So let's start with John, who writes this account right, of Jesus' life. And he doesn't refer to himself as I or me in the account. He calls himself that disciple or the other disciple. That's John. That's John writing about himself. So as we read uh, this address or this this, uh, account, John was the very first person to believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. It was early in the morning. Mary Magdalene and some of the other women had went to the tomb to sort of complete the, the anointing and the embalming of Jesus' body. But when they got there, they found that the tomb was open wasn't supposed to be, but it was open, and the body, when they looked inside, was gone. And from here, there's confusion, all right? Now, uh, naturally so, mass confusion breaks out. And if you read all four of the Gospels, you see different things happening, and people running back and forth, and, and different accounts of what's going on, and different orders of things. It's because we're getting multiple different views of a very chaotic event that just broke out. But in John's account, the women, these women run back to the city, and they tell the disciples that Jesus' body is gone. Some of the women say that they've seen an angel or two, some claim, and, and that some, someone even said that Jesus is risen. It's all very confusing. It's all very chaotic. John tells us that Mary came to Peter and John specifically and told them that the body of Jesus had been taken and that she doesn't know where it is. And I want to highlight that. She doesn't know where it is. That is the body of Jesus. She doesn't know where it is. She believes it's been taken. So at hearing this, with, with the frantic women and the sketchy reports of angels and everything else and the missing body, Peter and John must see for themselves. So we are told that they ran all the way out of town to the garden to where the tomb was, and, and, and they find, as the ladies had reported, because they didn't believe them, first of all, but they find, as the ladies had reported, that, that the stone is rolled aside and the body is gone. So John, who is younger than Peter, he gets there first. He's probably got better stamina, and he gets there ahead of Peter. And he peeks inside. He doesn't go in. He looks inside, and he sees the strips of burial linens lying there but he does not go inside. When Peter gets there, I mean, Peter is Peter, and he just blunders right inside, right? He just goes right in. Aggressive, straightforward Peter just walks straight into the tomb, and he too sees, it's reported, he sees the strips of linen lying there, and he also sees the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head, and John specifically, remember, this is a first-hand account. John specifically tells us that that cloth was folded up 
by itself, separate from the linen. John is very specific at this point. He's writing his own account. He's, he's writing about the things that particularly struck him. And it struck him that this cloth was separate, folded up, and placed in a different spot. Right? What John makes a point of noting here is that he sees inside the tomb an almost strange order. The strips of linen lying all together in one spot. The burial cloth folded up by itself in another place. And at that point, at the sight of this orderly empty tomb, John, it seems, concludes that this is not the scene of a grave robbery. (laughs) This is not the scene of an attempt to desecrate and further dishonor or hide the body of Jesus. It's just too orderly, right? The whole affair is just too orderly. Grave robbers and desecrators don't act in such an orderly fashion. They don't bother to fold up the burial cloth. They just don't. They don't bother to neatly, meticulously unwrap the strips of linen that were wound tightly around the body. They don't take that kind of time. They don't take that kind of care. If anyone wanted to just move or steal or desecrate the body and hide it somewhere else, they wouldn't have unwrapped it at all. Why would they? They'd have just left it all tightly wrapped up in a package like that because it's easier to carry around. They wouldn't have unwrapped it and then had to deal with this gangly body. If they were just stealing it, they would have left it as it was. So no, from the evidence here, this meager, slim evidence that John sees and reports for us, for him, for him, there was only one explanation at this point. For him, there was only one possibility. And without even seeing the resurrected Jesus, without seeing any angels, only the empty tomb and its orderly state, and probably with the words of Jesus echoing in his mind about the few times that he'd mentioned that he was going to resurrect from the dead, only that we are told that John saw this and believed. He believed. Now, that is amazing, frankly. That, that is amazing. And we should note that John obviously had a great capacity to believe. And at the same time, we should note that this was not the norm amongst the other disciples. This was something special. This was something unusual among the disciples. This level, this capacity for such easy, simple faith. You see, for the rest of Jesus' followers, it would take more than just this to believe. For some of them, it would take actually much more. So let's look at the next. The next of the followers of Jesus to believe is actually Mary. Mary Magdalene. And according to the events that John covers here, she is the next to believe, and she is the first actually to see the resurrected Jesus. You see, for John, believing was seeing. (laughs) He believed and he could see what happened, right? That's powerful faith. But for Mary and the rest of them, it took more. It took this necessity to see first in order to believe. But you know what? Even seeing is not always easy believing. (laughs) And we see that with Mary. Seeing is not always even easy believing. So when Peter and John left the tomb, they also left Mary, who'd followed them back to the tomb, they left her behind. 
and they left her in a very distraught state. She is weeping, we're told. And as she is there alone weeping, she goes again to the tomb, and again she takes a look inside. And this time she actually sees two people dressed in white sitting there where Jesus' body was laying. And John tells us that they're angels. But Mary doesn't seem to pick up on this. She doesn't even seem to care who these two people are. They're just strangers. And I assume, I can only assume that she was so distraught and so overwhelmed with grief that she doesn't even really care about who's in there or why they're in there. And she asks, or the strangers ask her, woman, why are you crying? And Mary replies to them through her tears and sobs. She says, they have taken my Lord away and I don't know where they have put him. Now, this is actually the second time that Mary has said this, right? That they have taken away the body and that she doesn't know where they've put it. She said it to Peter and John and now she says it to these angels. You see, as far as Mary is concerned, she knows what happened. She's already made her conclusions and she seems quite certain of it. And she obviously is overwhelmed with distress because of it. Her heart is broken with grief and she is almost cemented in her assumption as to what has happened. Jesus' dead body has been taken away. (laughs) That's what happened. And she doesn't know where it is. Then, at that point, she's apparently at the mouth of the tomb, maybe on her way out. At that point, Jesus comes up behind her and says to her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? And Mary turns and looks at him. But she doesn't recognize him. She doesn't recognize him. It it might be because the tears are impairing her vision. It might be that she doesn't really look him straight in the face, but she keeps her eyes cast downward. We're not sure. We're not told. But more than anything, I think that it is Mary's immense grief and the assumption that has come from that grief that has impaired Mary's vision and indeed her faith as well. Mary is just too hurt. She is just too grief-stricken to be moved beyond what she is sure must have happened. She's too grief-stricken, too stuck in that assumption to even consider the possibility that Jesus might be resurrected. And Mary's grief is understandable, all right? Mary's grief is understandable. You see, of all people, Mary's grief is understandable. Jesus was probably the only, only really good thing that ever happened to her in her life. You see, Mary's life was in absolute ruin before she met Jesus. Luke, in fact, tells us that Jesus had cast seven demons out of her. Jesus had rescued her, healed her, released her from the torment of seven demonic influences. Now, whatever it is to be possessed by seven devils, I don't know. But at the very least, it must mean that she was sick in body, sick in soul, and sick in mind. At the very least... She had fallen into utter despair. She was morally lost. The lostness of her soul led her to such anguish of mind that she must have become mentally sick. 
And that sickness of her mind must have racked her physical body as well. She was tormented and she was ill. Mary was broken and poor of spirit and worthless to the world and to herself. At the very least, that is what it means to be possessed by seven demonic influences. And Jesus healed her from all of that. Set her free from all of that. And this Mary was also apparently the same person who burst into the dinner party that Jesus attended at the house of Simon the Pharisee and came to Jesus and broke open this this alabaster jar of expensive oiled perfume and pours the precious oil all over Jesus' feet to anoint him. And she wept then too, right? She was weeping then too, only she was weeping for a different reason. She was weeping out of gratitude for how Jesus had just recently healed and forgiven her. And she even wiped clean Jesus' feet with her own hair. And the others at the dinner party, if you'll remember, were horrified at this because they knew what kind of a woman she was. And she was touching Jesus. (laughs) And Jesus, knowing what the people's thoughts were about her, he says to them that those who are forgiven the most are also the most grateful, and they therefore also love the most. And Mary's bold, radical actions demonstrated her tremendous degree of gratefulness and love for her Savior. And now, now, this Savior of hers, her rescuer, her forgiver, her healer of her very soul and life, this one who brought meaning and hope and value for the first time to her life, this one who she believed must be the Messiah was dead. And, and, and the last you know, remnants of him, his very body was gone. And that hurts Mary's soul. It crushes her. Her Jesus has been destroyed by a cruel world and along with him that same cruel world is now once again destroying her all over again. Destroying her hope and her joy. Destroying her worth. And it seems that Mary just can't see beyond that hurt and that grief. For the moment she is just stuck there. She's locked up there. She's confused. She's desperate and she's sinking she's sinking again into despair and hopelessness all over and you know in our darkest and most hopeless moments in our moments of despair we can probably identify with mary's impaired vision of the resurrected jesus right I mean, think about those times when you are in utter despair and how hard it is to see jesus during those times when everything has caved in on us and we see no hope, no relief for our situation, for our pain, when we're overwhelmed with grief or pity or disappointment or hurt, it is especially hard to see the truth and the triumph of Jesus in our lives clearly. It's obscured. Faith just seems so distant believing just seems so hard even though the truth might be right in front of us even though christ might be right beside us indeed even in us it can be like that when we're in that state i can identify with mary's impaired vision Mary is looking at Jesus and she sees something but she sees something altogether different she sees a gardener and I, and I have this picture of, of Rembrandt's painting of, of Jesus 
revealed to Mary as a gardener. You can see he's got a spade in his hand. <laughs> That's Rembrandt's first picture of Mary and, the, and, and, and this gardener. That's all she sees. And she sees that gardener, and he asks, she asks him if, she, if he has moved the body of Jesus, and if he has, please let her know where it is so she can retrieve it. And then, at that point, the magic happens. At that point, the miraculous happens. And Jesus speaks one word to Mary, just one more word that opens everything up to Mary. He says to her, Mary, that's it. He calls her by her own name. An anonymous gardener wouldn't know who she was. And it's not just that, it's the way he spoke that name. Surely, that was the big difference. Only one person spoke her name like that. You see, a person like Mary with her dubious, infamous past was accustomed to hearing her name spoken differently than that. (laughs) She was accustomed to hearing her name spoken mostly with scorn or disgust or hate or at the very best indifference. But here she is hearing her name spoken with such warmth and compassion and love the way, the way that Jesus, only Jesus could speak her name. It was unmistakable. And that personal voice of Jesus calling her by name, it broke once again through the walls of Mary's heart. It burst once again through the veil of tears and grief and pity. So this next picture of Rembrandt is is his second painting that he paints of Mary's encounter with Jesus, now she sees, now she knows, now she can tell who it is. Mary doesn't see a gardener anymore. She sees Jesus. And Mary immediately is changed. And she believes. Her tears are wiped away. Her sorrow is gone. And she is filled once again with peace and with value and with hope. She is filled with life. Now everything is different. And what we witness on the day of the resurrection of Jesus is also the spiritual resurrection of Mary. As Mary has been transformed by her personal experience with and by her belief in the resurrected Jesus. That is a transformational encounter. (laughs) For Mary, belief didn't come as easily as it did for John. There were some obstacles There was some walls. There was some assumptions that had to be overcome with her. But Jesus encountered her in just the way that needed to be in order for her to overcome those things. (laughs) Jesus is like that. That's how he does it for each of us. Our third person is actually a group of people, right? On that resurrection Sunday, the disciples were told were very afraid. (laughs) I mean, fear on this whole you know, from, from Good Friday on, fear kind of encapsulates the, the, the emotion of the disciples. They were troubled. And they seemed to be stuck in this unshakable fear. And, and why not? They're struggling. They're struggling because of everything that has happened that weekend. They're struggling because of their own shattered expectations. And they're filled with anxiety. And now there's this talk of resurrection. And what a strange and eerie thing it is. Strange and mysterious and to some degree even fearful. (laughs) I'm going to say, the the possibility, the, the, the 
growing reality of resurrection can be an unsettling and even fearful thing. Now let me just dig into that a little bit as to why I think that is. And perhaps this is nothing more than, than, than there, perhaps there is nothing more threatening to life as our world knows it, all right? Nothing more threatening to life as our world knows it than the prospect and the truth of resurrection, that life goes on after death, that life is eternal, right? That, that shakes everything in our world. And to be personally confronted, like in front of you, the reality of it sort of encroaching upon you with this endless eternal prospect that is so beyond us and our ability to understand or control it, it's kind of like seeing a ghost. And I think that's what's happening here. That this is something that changes everything. Suddenly our view of this world, of this life becomes small in comparison to eternity. And the things that we were so sure of that were so important, suddenly they're not so important. The the whole apple cart of values and priorities has been turned upside down in the face of resurrection. Suddenly the stakes of human life and existence have become so much greater and so much more significant than we ever thought they could be. You see, it's not just 80 or so years of toil on this earth and then it's all over. No more. It's it's not just grab what you can get now for yourself because that's all you're going to get. Suddenly, there's eternally more. Suddenly, the material things, the statuses, the, the positions that we so invest in in this world are just not important. But instead, the people and the life and the love that we invest in is terribly important. Suddenly, our Creator and spiritual, spiritual things become terribly important. What God wants of me becomes important. What is my life really all about becomes immensely important. That's what happens in the face of eternity and resurrection. And that can be an unsettling and shaking thing. The truth of the resurrection can have some big and even scary ramifications upon our lives. It means we must treat ourselves and our lives and others so differently. It means our values must change. And even in some cases, be completely inverted. It means that there is, in fact, a purpose in life. It means that there is a God in our lives who loves us and who wants us. Who wants us. And who who we must respond to. And in the end, yield to. And even, yes, even surrender to. A God who will be our God. Not just for now, but for eternity. It means that we might have to admit that we have been wrong about quite a lot of stuff. And that too can be a scary prospect, can't it? That can be a big barrier of faith and belief. And that, I think, is part of the core of the disciples' fear right here, is that they have been so wrong about Jesus. Do you remember just before this whole weekend, took place, they were actually fighting amongst each other, arguing amongst each other over which of them would be the greatest in the kingdom that Jesus was going to bring. 
They were, they were vying for position. That's where their heads were before all of this happened. When they left Jesus, they left Him by deserting Him in His hour of need. They ran. They forsook Him. They lost all hope and faith in Him. And now He's back. And the big question for them is, well, now what? (laughs) In the face of all of our error, in the face of our desertion of Him, how can we face Him? How is He going to treat us? The disciples, you see, have been wrong about quite a lot of stuff in regards to Jesus. Mostly about His kingdom. And and they thought it was an earthly here and now man glory, them glory kingdom. And that was so much less than what Jesus intended for them. He had for them an eternal kingdom. On this Easter weekend, they lost. They lost the kingdom that they were hoping for. They lost their aspirations for that. It died along with Jesus on the cross. And that was fearful for them. But something much better resurrected in its place, right? And that's what's just beginning to dawn on them. That's what they're starting to face. They are now faced with the prospect of a heavenly kingdom, a God kingdom, an eternal and forever kingdom of ultimate hope and peace and fulfillment and glory and joy. That is a much better kingdom. And the disciples now encountering the resurrected Jesus are given his much-needed peace. You notice that Jesus twice has to speak peace upon them? Twice he says, peace. And he has to say it again. Why does he say it again? It's because they're not getting it yet. So he has to lay it upon them again. Peace, you guys, peace. Because they're not feeling it yet. He speaks it upon them. And then he even imparts to them the Holy Spirit, I think, to help them with that peace. And so that they would at least begin to understand the much greater hope of this new kingdom that they are being called to believe in. Right? And they do. They step into it. They step into it. But it wasn't an easy step for them. It was actually a fearful step for them. Now finally, there's Thomas. (laughs) Thomas. I love the story of Thomas here, and I I love the picture that we're going to put up of, of Thomas. It's an amazing painting. Thomas has become obstinate in his disbelief, it seems. You would almost think that with so many of his closest friends telling him the same story, giving to him the same testimony that he must believe, but he refuses to believe. It's like he refuses to believe. Thomas is a realist. That's Thomas. He's a realist. He is a sensible man that will be ruled by his senses and not by his emotions. Thomas must have empirical proof and it must be his senses that 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 see and feel and, and experience that empirical proof of jesus resurrected it must be proof gathered by him personally seen by him felt by him heard by him or he simply will not believe at least that's what he says this is too big of a deal for him to just take the testimony of others this is too outrageous I mean, people don't come back from the dead. This is just too much for him to just accept the testimony of others. He's got to see it and experience it for himself. And a week later, Thomas gets what he demands. 
Jesus again appears to his disciples. This time, Thomas is there. He wasn't there the first time. Jesus, at that, on that occasion, invites Thomas to stretch out his hand and put it in his side and to put his finger into the nail prints in his hands. <laughs> and when Thomas sees, and when Thomas hears, and when Thomas touches, Thomas instantly, here's the thing, here's the thing about Thomas. Yeah, he doubted the most, but he also instantly, when he believes, he instantly makes the greatest and the most accurate confession of all of the disciples. And Thomas says, no, he doesn't really just say, he declares, because this is a declaration. Tom and Thomas declares, my Lord and my God. That's what he declares. And here in Thomas's amazing confession, John, the author of this gospel, he ties together one of the themes, one of the purposes, one of the objectives of his entire account of the life of Jesus. And that is the realization, the, the, the proclamation, the witness, the testimony, the truth that Jesus is God. He's been working at that from the beginning. That the Father is God and that the Son is God and that the two are one. Right? In fact, Thomas's amazing confession here links us right back to the very beginning of John's Gospel, to chapter 1, to John's prologue, where he tells us that in the beginning was the Word, the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word, God, came and dwelt among us. It was Jesus and that his own would not accept him, and that John the Baptist would testify about the Word, and that the Word is Jesus, and the Word is God. Doubting Thomas is the first of the disciples to finally and fully realize this and actually speak it out loud. Right? It's often true of doubters that when they are won over, they become the greatest of believers. It's so true. C.S. Lewis was like that. G.K. Chesterton was like that, and so many others. And that was the case with Thomas. Thomas immediately goes from obstinate doubt to the greatest level of belief and understanding, the greatest level of divine revelation. And he speaks the truth about Jesus that the others do not yet fully comprehend he is lord and god jesus is god and you know for a monotheistic jew <laughs> utterly committed to the idea of one god that is a truly amazing confession here right that jesus is that one god in human flesh and another thing another thing to learn here from thomas about great skeptics and the resurrection right is that, is that they're not always as far away as they appear to be. <laughs> they're not always quite as big a doubter as they make out themselves to be. <laughs> That's the truth, too. Um, they're never quite so hardened, never quite so far away from the faith as they often make out. You see, off, I think it's quite obvious that Thomas didn't really need to put his fingers in the holes. <laughs> he didn't really have to do that in order to believe he believed when he saw, and he believed quickly 
and he believed ultimately, and he believed like nobody else. Thomas only needed, here's what he really needed, he needed a real and personal experience with Jesus, just like we all need. I don't, think, I don't know that any of us really believes until we have that, a personal, real experience with Jesus. That's all. That's all. And once he had that, he believed right away and to the fullest extent. Well, those are the accounts. And they're varied, aren't they? John believes before he ever even sees. Amazing. Amazing. Maybe some of you were like that too. Mary can't recognize him. Now, I mean, b- before he even has a, a personal experience with Jesus, right? Uh, he, he believes just by seeing bits of evidence and remembering what Jesus said. Mary can't recognize him because of her intense grief and pain until he calls her intimately by name. And for some of us, it probably took that, didn't it? Realizing that Jesus knows me personally and he is calling me personally. And the disciples, the fearful prospect of believing and changing and putting aside all of their agendas and turning their world and their hopes and dreams, even in God, upside down. That was not easy. But that's what had to happen. And they were able to do that. And when they did, they received that peace. They received that incredible peace. And then there's Thomas. Obstinate. Obstinate Thomas. But once he encounters Jesus, he believes beyond all the other disciples. You know what occurs to me is that all of these things continue to happen. (laughs) All of these kinds of experiences, they continue to happen. They happen from the disciples all the way through the centuries right up until today, and they are still happening. People are still profoundly encountering the resurrected Jesus, and he changes everything about their lives. Some easily, some through grief that's difficult, some through agendas that have to be turned upside down, some through just obstinate doubting. (laughs) He gets through it all. He gets through it all. All of these things continue to happen. And at the very end of this passage in verses 30 and 31, John sums up. It's almost like he, he saves these witness accounts right for that end. And then he sums up his gospel, the purpose of his gospel, by writing this. He says, Jesus performed many other signs right in the, in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe, that I may believe. This book, this letter was, or epistle, no, gospel was written for us. It's, it's almost like it's being addressed to us. Anyone who happens to read it, it was written for you, right? That Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life, life like you've never known it before, life in his name. That's what it's all about. And when we assent to that, when we give in to him, when we receive that gift of life, it's like everything, everything changes. Everything is made new. It's like the sun shines differently. The air breathes indifferently, right? 
It's like everything is different. The birds sing differently. It's like our whole world changes. And if you've gone through that, you know what I'm talking about. I think sometimes we can sort of get into the doldrums of things and sort of slide away from that a little bit. But then God puts things in our lives that pull us right back to that first encounter again. Right back to that realization of His presence in our lives again. And the reality of, of, of His life living even inside of our lives. And the truth of His resurrection. And the change of everything. And it all brightens up again. <laughs> and on this Easter Sunday, I pray that we would be impacted by that. By the reality of it all over again that we would receive it all over again and be consumed by it all over again and, and enheartened by it, enlivened by it, filled with hope by it all over again. That we would just be bursting with the desire to share it with everybody because it is such good news. Amen? Yeah we now get the chance to proclaim his death, which we're called to do, to proclaim it until he comes. So we're going to share communion right now on this most special of Sundays and reenact what it is that he did for us. So I'm going to invite you to grab your communion elements, uh, a wafer or a piece of bread, and a cup of juice, or whatever you have handy. And... Uh, I've got mine right here, so I'm going to give you a moment to grab yours as I sort of settle myself to uh, lead you in this. There's so much in this. These elements that we hold, they're filled with so much. So much symbolism. But I think we sell it a little bit short if we only point to the symbolism of it. There's a reenactment here. There's an engagement here with these elements that are, are special. There's something about ingesting these things that just brings us closer to that idea of accepting Jesus into our lives. There's something about this idea of, of bread and drink being the nourishment for our very souls and even our lives. We're supposed to grasp that out of it. And as we go through and reenact this idea of consuming them and receiving them into us again, it is the idea of, of reliving that moment when Christ entered us, when the resurrected Christ stepped into our lives and turned everything upside down in the best of ways, right? That's what we're supposed to grasp to. And Jesus told his disciples to do this often, right? This is the instruction that the Apostle Paul received from the Lord, to do this often in remembrance of him. And, and he instructs us to do that because it's true that we are prone to forget. Human beings are prone to forget. Life as it goes causes us to forget things, to sort of leave memories behind. And here Jesus is saying, this is too big of a memory to leave behind. Hold on to this. So reenact it. Reenact it regularly to keep it fresh in your hearts and souls. So we remember that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he gave to his disciples and he said, this is my body. <laughs> the body of our God. God in human flesh. The body that he came to us in. This is my body which is broken for you. It's why he came. To be broken for us. To pay a debt 
on our behalf. Take and receive this act of sacrifice he made for you. And then after supper, he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. And I love, I love the concept of that, a new covenant. A covenant is an arrangement. A covenant is a deal worked out between two parties. And this is the new covenant. It replaces an old one. And the crux of the new covenant is that I will shed my blood for your sin so that you can go free. That's the new covenant. That's the new deal that God makes with us through Christ. He sacrifices and pays the debt of sin on our behalf. So we have no more debt to pay. We are freed from the debt. (laughs) The sin isn't just forgotten. The sin isn't just, oh, let's pretend it never happened. It is actually paid for by him, by his blood, so that we're set free and that we might like him live forever. Amen? Oh, that's a big amen. So take and receive and drink. Drink it, all of it. God, we are grateful. We are filled with gratitude And we're filled with hope. And I pray that you would bless us on this day. That you have already so blessed us with such an amazing new covenant. (laughs) That we would recognize how much you've done for us. Recognize the depth of your love for us. That you would come and do this to rescue us. Lord, thank you. Thank you. And may we just be filled again with just the joy of it all. And may we just be open to sharing this message with our world that so clearly needs this kind of hope. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. And God bless you.